things that we need to carry with us on this journey or uh, learn along the way. And one of the things we kept coming back to was the fact that when people enter into formal training here and become students, it's a very conscious and deliberate act. There's a very decisive moment where we have become a student, where we've entered into training that's acknowledged um, by everyone involved, by everyone concerned, by the Sangha, by the teacher. And it's no small thing. It requires quite a bit of us to uh, go oftentimes to places within ourselves we've never traveled before, to ask questions of ourselves we've never asked, to try and listen in a way that perhaps we've never listened before, and all and throughout to try and gain clarity about what it is we're actually uh, intending to do. What is our intention? Where do we think we're going? And at that moment where we become a student, so to speak, we then begin to practice. And, and one of the things that happens is we, in a, in a sense, d discover or bump into the, the different ways in which we're not yet a student or we're, we haven't yet learned what that is. And so, in a sense, the, the premise of, the, of this retreat was to, to look at how, what is it to learn how to, how to study and train. And on Thursday night, as we began, I read some from uh, the first chapter of Evelyn Underhill's book on mysticism, in which she talks about the mystic path. And as I told the folks on Friday morning, the reason I wanted to begin that way was to just bring home the fact that that is what this tradition is. It's a mystical tradition. It's based on a mystical experience. And that <clears throat> these days there are lots of experiences out there to be had. Um, there's lucid dreaming and telepathy and out-of-body experiences and just a whole litany of different experiences that, that one can have through these various techniques and fragments of spiritual traditions and, and whatnot. And that <clears throat> what differentiates the, the mystical path from from the pursuit of any of those various experiences, which in a sense can come down to different forms of entertainment, is the desire to realize unity. As Evelyn Underhill says, to realize unity with the absolute, or to, to achieve unity with the absolute. But of course, what the Buddha realized 2,500 years ago is that's already been done. That's been accomplished. That comes with birth that our inherent nature is one of unity. That it's what we create, it's our delusion, our misunderstanding or our confusion that creates this notion of separateness. So it's not a matter of, of uh, accomplishing unity, it's just a matter of discovering. And that that's what any and all uh, mystical path is about. In this koan, this monk is asking, or, or rather Master Ching asks this monk, what sound is that outside the gate? And the monk says, the sound of raindrops. And Ching says, sentient beings are inverted. They lose themselves and follow after things. 
This was a, uh, Qing, Master Qing in Japanese is Kyose. He was a, um, a successor of uh, Shefeng or Seppo in Japanese. This was a favorite question of his. He asked it on numerous occasions of his students. Another time he asked another monk, what sound is that outside the gate? And the monk said, the sound of quail. And Qing said, if you wish to avoid uninterrupted hell, then don't slander the wheel of the true dharma. Another time he asks a different monk, what sound is that outside the gate? And the monk said, the sound of a snake eating a frog. <laughs> this guy's got pretty good ears. <laughs> and Master Ching said, I knew that sentient beings suffer. Here is another suffering sentient being. Was he talking about the frog? Was he talking about the snake? Was he talking about the monk? In each of these cases, these monks respond the way anyone would, the way any logical person would. It's a sound of quail. It's a sound of rain. Why does Ching keep responding in these ways? What does he mean? Sentient beings are inverted. They lose themselves and follow after things. In that chapter by uh, Elvin Underhill, and I, I want to read a little bit from this because she says, um, she basically responds to this, but in a little bit of a different language than we often um, hear. She says, let us then, and again, she's talking about the, the mystical past. She says, let us then begin at the beginning and remind ourselves of a few of the trite and primary facts which all practical persons agree to ignore. She says, that beginning for human thought is, of course, the I, the ego, that sense of separate self, the self-conscious subject which is writing this book, or the other self-conscious subject which is reading it. She says, here's a point as to which we all feel quite sure, that is, that there is this I. There is someone listening to this talk. There is someone giving this talk. That is quite self-evident. It's something that we all feel quite sure about. She says, to this I, this conscious self, imprisoned in the body like an oyster in the shell, as Plato said, Come, as we know, a constant stream of messages and experiences. Chief amongst these are the stimulation of the tactile nerves, whose result we call touch, or sight, or sound, or smell, or in Buddhism, thought, because mind is one of the sense organs, and thought is the object of that organ. She says, what do these experiences mean? The first answer of the unsophisticated self is that they indicate the nature of the external world. It is to the evidence of her senses that she turns when she's asked what the world is like. It's warm. It's wet. It's dark. It's lonely. It's scary. It's beautiful. From the messages when she is asked what the world, uh, from the messages received through these senses, which pour in on her, whether she wants them to or not, battering upon her gateways at every instance and from every side, she constructs that sense world, which is the real world of normal people. As these impressions come in, or rather those interpretations 
of the original impressions, which our nervous system supplies, she pounces on them, much as players in the spelling game pounce on the separate letters dealt out to them. She sorts, accepts, rejects, combines, and then triumphantly produces from them a concept which is. This is the real world, she says, the external world. With an enviable and amazing simplicity, she attributes her own sensations to the unknown universe. The stars, she says, are bright. The grass is green. What she's describing in, in Buddhist terms is the five aggregates, form, sensation, conception, discrimination, awareness. How is it that we come to perceive, come to experience this world which we then concretize or, or, or assemble into what we then conclusively decide is the real world. And what does Avalokiteshvara have to say about those five aggregates in the Heart Sutra? She says, O Shariputra, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form is exactly emptiness, emptiness exactly form. Sensation, conception, discrimination, awareness are all like this. She go, Evelyn Underhill goes on to say, it's immediately apparent, however, that the sense world, this seemingly real external universe, though it may be useful and valid in other respects, cannot be the external world but only our self's projected picture of it. She says it's a work of art, not a scientific.